The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to The Terrifying Lies Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. I hope you enjoyed my guided tour of the Thornhill Mansion, the most haunted house in America, over the last two episodes. If you didn't listen, I invite you to go back two episodes and walk those dark, wicked hallways. I'd like to ask you a favor. It's simple. If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, share it with friends. Tell other fiction podcast listeners that these stories are online and waiting for them. Enough of that. A bit about today's story. I love the Rocky movies. Rocky Balboa, in fact, is a character so fleshed out and enmeshed in our pop culture that it is almost feasible that he lives in our reality, walking the streets of Philadelphia. Rocky inspired today's story, The Recruit. Of course, I took my creative license and made it into something entirely alien to anything Rocky Balboa has ever encountered in his eight-movie run. I now give you The Recruit, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. See you on the other side. Mickey Atlas couldn't stop his hands from shaking. He sat on the hardwood bench, long worn by spit, blood, and antiseptics, looking at his taped fists. He wondered if he would live through the night. The back of his robe read Mighty Atlas, but it didn't feel mighty. He remembered the slime he'd felt in his gut when the doctor had told him about his brain injury. Subdural hematoma, the doc had said. Ready to pulverize, champ? Stooley's voice, too loud in the reverberating locker room, called Mickey to his senses. Stooley was right about pulverization. This wasn't no boxing match. In the American Fighting League, they used four-ounce cage fighting gloves. Might as well do it bare-fisted. And they would've if the regulators hadn't stepped in when the league had gone legit. Still shaking, eh? Stooley sat down on the bench across from Mickey and grabbed both of his hands. You know, I can stop the fight. Mickey looked up from under the hood of his robe, his eyes devoid of their usual intensity. Can't do it. I gotta have the scratch. Stooley dropped Mickey's hands and sighed. He stood up and looked away from Mickey. You gave it to that bookie of yours again, didn't you? Mickey glanced down at the floor. A crack in the tile looked roughly like a swastika. He'd been staring at it for the past 20 minutes. What have I made you? 350 large in the past year and a half? And you give it all away to that damn greaser? I got issues, man, you know that. Mickey felt a lump rise in his throat. He'd always been a crier. Even cried on the canvas once in a while. But the sweat cloaked his tears. I gotta fight. Okay, it ain't my skin you're in, Stooley said. He looked Mickey over for a silent moment with that paternal expression of his. 
I'll let you do your thing. See you at the cage, champ. Stooley stood up and walked out of the locker room, his new sneakers squeaking on the tiles. Tears welled up in Mickey Atlas's eyes. Snot broke free from his nostrils and trailed down the line of his lips. He ignored the salty taste when the runnel reached his mouth. What was the difference anyways? He was going to die tonight in the cage with Parker Remo, or he was going to die under the Louisville sluggers of Martini's thugs. Sure, one-on-one he could take those guys, even Scotty Ball, that short little son of a bitch, but he couldn't take four or five of them with baseball bats. He didn't hear the stranger come into the locker room. He didn't even hear the latch click or footsteps. He didn't hear breathing, the rustle of clothing, or any other of the sounds a looming stranger usually makes. He didn't even get that tick in his ear he usually felt when someone walked up behind him. He only heard the stranger's voice. Mickey couldn't place the accent. Sounded foreign all right, but not like anything he had heard before. This is unfortunate, implacable obstacle, the stranger said. The voice startled Mickey. His chin snapped up. The dude wore a black fedora and matching overcoat. Mickey blinked. The stranger sat down on a bench across from him. His movements labored, as if the very act of sitting pained him, as if his body didn't have the right shape for the simple act of sitting down. The stranger's eyes, perhaps a bit too far apart, locked on Mickey, scanning him, never blinking. What do you want, dude? Mickey said, lowering his bushy eyebrows a few millimeters. It's not an implacable obstacle. I have come to offer a dilemma. A what? A dilemma for you. Your hands, they shake. You can't stop them, no? Mickey glanced down at his hands. They jittered as if taunting him. What's it to you? Did Martini send you? It's not an implacable obstacle. I can stop your hands. They're shaking. Did Martini send you? The stranger reached into an inner pocket of his overcoat, withdrew something. He leaned forward with that strange body of his across the gap between them and placed two items on the bench next to Mickey. Mickey reluctantly took his eyes off the stranger. A small part of him worried that the stranger would jump him the second he put down his guard. Damn, there was something weird about the dude. He looked down at the two items the stranger had placed on a bench. Mickey had a tradition. Each time he won a fight, he picked up a cheap piece of jewelry for his girlfriend, Tracy, down at Stella's Gifts on his way home from the arena. Lately, he'd taken to hematite pendants, bracelets. Tracy dressed like a goth lately, which Mickey didn't mind. He liked the dark, mysterious type. The gunmetal hematite pendants and bracelets he'd been buying her made her look hot in all those black clothes and dark lipstick. The two oval stones lying on a scratched-up bench next to him looked like the same shiny hematite he'd been picking up for dimes down at Stella's. What am I supposed to do with these? Mickey said. The stranger balled up his fists and placed them against his temples. For the first time, he blinked. Mickey nearly screamed. The stranger's eyes didn't blink like humans. They blinked from the sides. 
Mickey stood up and backed away from the stranger. Look, man, I don't know what you are, but I got enough troubles of my own. I want you out of here now. The stranger picked up the two stones, one in each hand, balled up his fists and put them against his temples. Like this. You do this. Stooley! Backing up against a bank of lockers. But before he could shout another word, the stranger was on him, moving so fast that Mickey could barely make out a blur as he crossed the room. The stranger pinned Mickey against the lockers with his chest, which felt bumpy, like a sack full of gravel beneath the stranger's overcoat. Mickey tried to throw a couple of punches, but couldn't effectively land him at such close range. I can stop your hands. They're shaking, the stranger said and raised the two stones to Mickey's temples. Something happened. Mickey's ears crackled as a kind of ethereal energy expanded out from the stones. The energy curled and spun through Mickey's temples, tracing along his nerves and blood vessels. Felt like someone had wrapped his brain in aluminum and plugged the whole mess into the wall. But as quickly as the energy enveloped his head, it fell away. The stranger backed away from Mickey, lowering the two stones. Mickey felt changed. Lucid awareness filled his senses. The stench of old sweat and moldy towels seemed or pronounced. His vision, sharper, allowed him to see the cuts between the tiles and bricks of the room with absolute clarity. The little swastika crack in the floor showed its grit and wear with precision. Mickey looked at his hands. They floated, hovering in front of him like doves. The shaken gone for the first time in a year. He clenched them into fists and raised them. He threw a couple of shadow punches and smiled. The stranger dutched his head slightly to one side, but remained otherwise expressionless. What'd you do to me? Mickey said. He threw a couple of more punches. He felt unstoppable. He'd take it to the cage and put Remo down. Then one of his hands started shaking. No, Mickey said. The other hand began its palsied quiver like a leaf tickled by a cold breeze. Something came unplugged in the back of Mickey's brain and the newfound clarity drained away, replaced by the familiar fog he'd lived in for the past year. As the fog settled in, his ears rang. The ache returned to his head and his hands shuddered. A visceral need for the effects of the healing stones moved into him. At a primal level, he craved the clarity, the control, the extra sense the stones had granted him. He looked at the stranger, not able to stifle the desperation in his face. It's not an implacable obstacle. I have come to offer you a dilemma, the stranger said. What dilemma? I give you robustness. You win tonight. Then you fight for me. Who are you? I am friend, as long as you fight for me. Mickey took in a deep breath and let it out in a level sigh. He looked up at the ceiling. Asbestos, he thought. Surprised him that the city hadn't shut down the whole damn facility and sent in a hazmat team to scrape the cancer panels away. He looked back at the stranger. Sure, dude. Anything. Just give me the juice. The stranger dropped a gunmetal stones into one pocket and reached into another. This time, he drew out two white stones. He offered them to Mickey with an open palm. 
Mickey took them, one in each hand. So I just... Mickey moved the stones toward his head. The stranger nodded. Mickey put the stones to his temples and closed his eyes. The energy bloomed again, filling Mickey's mind with color and sensitivity. This time, the energy penetrated deeper, unblocking channels, rewiring schematics, turning up positive frequencies, attenuating white and pink noise. Mickey smiled, an involuntary reaction to the effect of the energy with its nano-sensors adjusting his mind at an atomic level. When the energy died away, Mickey felt whole again. He moved his fists away from his temples and looked at them. No quaking. The stranger reached out a palm for the stones. Mickey gave him back. Go do that, which you must do, the stranger said. Then you fight for me. Mickey didn't know where the stranger had come from. He reckoned the dude wasn't even human. He'd never be able to explain what had happened to Stooley, Tracy, or any of his friends. Hell, he could barely believe it himself. But he didn't care. He felt strong. He could fight again, like he had when he had first entered the league years ago, and that was enough for him. Mickey snatched his gloves from a hook where they had been dangling and put them on his taped hands. He crossed the tile floor and opened the locker room door. The crowd's roar met him, washing through the portal and down the long hall that led to the cage. He punched his hands together and worked a couple of reversals with his legs. He cracked his neck with a couple of quick lateral jerks. He looked back into the locker room at the stranger. The dude stood like a statue, his eyes fixed on Mickey, his face wearing no hint of expression. Mickey, you're pushing it! Stooley's voice came from up the hallway. Get out here! Mickey chuckled and strode up the hallway. Behind him, the locker room door slowly closed on its hydraulic hinges. It clicked shut, leaving a stranger to wait. Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Danny Glitter announced a match all pimped up in his signature silver jacket and sunglasses. He pumped up the crowd with his usual saws, promising violence and anger in the cage. Mickey, standing in his corner of the cage with Stooley, ignored Danny's diatribe. He focused on Tracy, who sat in her usual seat, seven rows back from Mickey's corner. Mickey smiled and winked at her. She looked hot, her hair too black, dark lipstick framing her thin, unsmiling mouth. She wore a hematite pearl necklace. Mickey had paid all of 49 bucks for the cheap piece of jewelry, but it fit Tracy's latest mood perfectly, morose and naughty. She looked up at him. Mickey could tell that she noticed something different about him. Mickey flexed for her, a playful flourish. She smiled. He liked that smile. He hadn't seen it in a while. Just wait, baby, Mickey thought. Just wait. Till tonight, I'll keep you smiling. After this fight, I've got a surprise for you. Mickey bounced on the balls of his feet, psyching himself up to do battle against Parker Remo. He expected to win quickly. The guy was getting long in the tooth as far as cage fighters went, and Mickey felt like he was about to explode. I don't want to break it to you, kid, but they're here, Stooley said as he checked Mickey over, looking for anything out of sorts. Who's here? Mickey asked. Martini and his bitches. They're at the portal. Look, I'm gonna put down Remo in the first round. Then I'm gonna pay off that bastard. Fat chance. You probably can't even make the VIG. After this fight, I can make more than the VIG. Stooley looked Mickey in the eye. How much did you put down on this fight? Don't worry about it, Mickey said. Kid, you're on a one-way run to the grave. If it isn't Remo gonna kill you with one of those sloppy sidewinder punches, it's gonna be Martini and his boys. I said, don't worry about it. Stooley stepped back from Mickey, shaking his head. Then he noticed something new. Hey, kid, what gives? What do you mean? Mickey stopped bouncing. No shaking. Did you take something? I didn't take nothing, man, Mickey said. That fight's as clean as a whistle's far as I go. Unless Martini's paid Remo to dive. That ain't likely. I think Martini'd just as soon see you dead as get his money back. Well, I got a surprise for him. Mickey punched his fists together and waited for the bell. Danny Glitter finished his flourishes and slogans, scraping the crowd up into a fury of stomping and yelling. He let the microphone go. As it rose up out of harm's way, Danny, Stooley, and Remo's trainer exited the cage leaving Mickey Atlas and Parker Remo alone on the canvas. The bell rang. Mickey and Remo closed on each other, pausing toe-to-toe at ring center. Tell you what, Remo, Mickey said, I'm going to beat you down tonight like a little doggy. But first, I'm going to give you one for old time's sake. Mickey lowered his hands and exposed himself for a free shot. At first, Remo didn't move. Was this a trick? Come on, tough guy. One for free. You better take it fast before I change my mind. Remo shrugged and punched. Mickey turned his head as the right jab came at him. 
careful not to take it on the forehead where he knew even an old hack like Remo could knock a guy cold. The blow landed on Mickey's jaw. Nothing more than a jarring bump. Mickey backdanced out of Remo's range. Remo came at him, his guard up, hoping for a second shot while Mickey was dazed. But Mickey met him with a roundhouse kick to the ribs and a pair of jabs to the head. Remo cringed, cursing under his breath. A string of words that would have gotten his mouth washed out with soap if he'd used them around his mother or a nun. I told you, little puppy, one shot, that's all you get. Mickey felt like his old self. Ten years younger and tougher, he could actually toy with Remo in the cage like he had done with so many fighters before his injury brought the fog. Mickey couldn't explain it, but he could see what his opponents were thinking. It was like he had access to the playbooks. His precognizant fighting style had gotten him into the league at a young age and sent him on a long, undefeated run. His injury a year ago had taken all that away, but the stranger had fixed him, and he felt unbreakable. They say chess masters play several moves ahead. When it came to fighting, Mickey was a freaking Bobby Fischer. Remo shook off the haze of Mickey's blows, raised his guard, and came again, throwing a pair of jabs. Mickey easily ducked the punches and came back with an uppercut to Remo's ribs. In the same spot he had worked with the roundhouse, Remo winced. Mickey was getting to him. As the fight went on, Mickey noticed that the stranger had come out of the portal to watch the fight from the back of the hall. Mickey smiled at the odd man who wore an overcoat and fedora. The stranger stood out like a priest in a brothel. Human or not, the stranger had given Mickey his former fighting prowess. And if Mickey had to fight a few rounds for the stranger in return, so be it. The stranger, his face tacit, nodded once, acknowledging Mickey's smile. Mickey went to work on Remo, first using his shoulder as a battering ram to drive him into the corner. He threw a series of jabs at Remo's head, all with his right hand, keeping his fist up to guard. He navigated his punches around Remo's guard with each blow. Remo tired and began to sloth off, allowing Mickey to trade in his guard and go animal. Like a two-piston engine, he threw a volley of punches with alternating fists. Remo managed to sneak in a desperate kick, but Mickey caught his leg and tossed it upward. Remo smacked down onto the canvas. Mickey closed in over Remo, raising his right fist for a kill blow, but it was all show. He had no intention of throwing the fight by breaking the rules with an illegal punch. The referee moved in and pushed Mickey back before beginning the count. Do yourself a favor and stay down, little doggy, Mickey said. Remo ignored the warning and pushed himself up to his feet. The ref looked Remo in the eyes for an indication that the fighter was okay to continue. Remo nodded once. New rage flooding into his cold, marble eyes. Mickey smiled. Once a fighter lost his temper, the fight was over. Mickey knew how to use a fighter's rage against him. Mickey had a reputation for talking smack in the ring. It was all part of his strategy. Get him mad, then put him down. The ref moved out of the way, and Remo came after Mickey in a half-cocked bull rush. Mickey poised himself, raising his right hand and anticipating the exact moment velocity and trajectory and biomechanical leverage he needed to issue the perfect punch. Most fighters just threw punches without working through all the parameters. But Mickey, time slowed down in a ring, giving him plenty of room to calculate his blows, especially when it came down to a finishing smash like this one. 
Remo advanced. Mickey let his cocked fist fly. His glove moved at a slant past Remo's guard and impacted into Remo's exposed forehead with a satisfying cracking noise. Mickey sidestepped Remo's momentum. Remo took two more awkward steps, then folded to the canvas, hitting the mat cheek-foist. Mickey backed off and waited for the count. Somewhere between one and ten, he blew a kiss to Tracy in the seventh row. Her face bloomed into the most sincere smile Mickey had ever seen in months. He looked up at a stranger who stood by the tunnel, his head cocked to the side, his unblinking eyes staring back at the cage. He spotted Martini, not far from the stranger, directing a pair of cohorts down from the bleachers, undoubtedly to meet Mickey as he made his way to the locker room. Ten, the ref said. The bell rang, and Mickey danced, throwing a few air punches, smiling, kissing his gloves, and throwing them at the crowd. The cheers lifted Mickey, fueling him, giving him new life. With the gift the stranger had given him, Mickey felt invincible. As Mickey cut his way up the aisle toward the locker room, Martini and two of his men, a lanky kid Mickey didn't recognize, and Scotty Bull stood at the portal. Hey, Mickey, Martini said. Nice fight. Look, I got your money, Mickey said. Why don't we just head to the cashier's office and make it official, Martini said. Give me a minute, will you? With a quick head jerk, Martini ordered his two toughs to close in. Scotty Bull and Lanky Kid moved on Mickey. They escorted him deeper into the portal and around the corner. Now out of eye shot from the crowd, Scotty reached into his pocket and pushed Mickey up against a wall. Mickey knew that Scotty carried a pearl-handled stiletto. The little bulldog had bragged about the knife many times. Mickey didn't feel like getting stabbed. Look, Martini, you're gonna get your money. I ain't holding back on you. You just gotta let me get dressed and go to the cashier's office. Another figure moved into the long corridor. A figure wearing a dark overcoat and fedora. Mickey looked over Scotty's shoulder at the stranger standing behind Martini. Somehow, the stranger had managed to move up behind Martini without making a sound. I am capable of paying this man's debt, the stranger said. Startled, Martini wheeled around, reaching into the place of his front waistband where he carried a 9mm, but he didn't draw the pistol. In his line of business, Martini had run across many unusual men, but he'd never set eyes on anyone like the stranger. Martini backed off a couple of steps, an involuntary reaction. Like I said, Mickey said, I'm not holding out on you. The stranger reached into his pocket and drew out a manila envelope. He opened the envelope and revealed a stack of $100 bills. Everyone's eyebrows went up, including Mickey's. I trust, the stranger said, this will restore the debt of Mickey Atlas the stranger offered the manila to Martini. If they were all Franklins, Mickey estimated that there must be at least 20 large in the envelope. A slow smile curled across Martini's face as he accepted the envelope. He opened the flap, drew out the bills, and flipped them. They riffled away, crisp, freshly minted. Martini's smile widened. With a flick of his head, he ordered his men to back off from Mickey. Well, Mickey Atlas... You got some persuasive friends. Tell you what, I'm gonna let you enjoy this little victory in peace. Go spend it with that Elvira girlfriend of yours. Get yourself a good meal, 
take a few days off, then we'll talk. I've got a proposition for you that I think might work out well for the both of us. I ain't gonna make no more deals with you, Mickey said. Martini moved up so close that Mickey could smell the aqua velva wafted from his cheeks. That's where you're wrong, Mickey Adelis. You see, I know your kind better than you know yourself. Your kind always makes a deal with Martini. One way or the other, we're gonna deal, and if you see it my way, you might just walk away a rich man. Martini patted Mickey's cheek in full affection. Well, who knows? You might not walk away at all. Martini reached into the manila and drew out one of the Benjamins. He wadded it up, stuffed it into Mickey's robe pocket. Now go get some nice Chinese food. It's on me. With that, Martini turned and walked away, Scotty Bull and the lanky kid falling in behind him. Mickey spat on the ground as the three of them left. He looked up at the stranger. Man, dude, I don't know where you came from, but that's twice you bailed me out. Now, you fight for me, the stranger said. You got it, dude. You set up the fights, I'll knock them down. The stranger reached into his pocket and drew out another stone. This one larger and metallic. Peregrine symbols, words in another language, lay etched in its chrome. Now we go, the stranger said. He draped an arm over Mickey's shoulders and held the stone in front of him. We go where? Mickey asked, his face suddenly drawn in confusion. The device. You touch it now, and we go, the stranger said. Mickey glanced at the stranger, blinking again with that freaky sideways flash. The device. You touch it now, the stranger said. Tracy came out of the portal and rounded the corner, the smile never having left her face. She spotted Mickey and trotted toward him. Mickey, she said. Before Mickey saw her, he reached up and touched the stone. A sense of quickening rushed over Mickey's whole body. The same energy emanated by the two white stones flooded through him, but this time the energy served a different purpose. Mickey felt his essence come apart at its most elemental level. Nausea set in as his energy flowed in waves and patterns through a hole in space Mickey hadn't noticed before. But it felt as if that hole had always been there, right in front of him, waiting to open and suck him in. The essence that was Mickey Atlas reformed again, building him up from his most foundational base, recomposing his body and consciousness. When the energy rushed away, Mickey stood with the stranger in an entirely different place, a long hallway that ran in both directions as far as Mickey could see. The stench of the place, vile and biological, part animal, part human, part feces, part vomit, nearly overtook Mickey. Pallid light fell down from a source Mickey couldn't quite place. He couldn't tell if the hallway was constructed of stone or filthy metal. The place acted like an echo chamber, reverberating a cacophony of miserable sounds, moaning, crazy shouting in unknown languages, weeping. Cells lined the hallway, each housing a different creature. One prisoner to Mickey's right looked like a gigantic beetle, its body like a boulder, its pincers working at the bars, fumbling at the metal. The creature to Mickey's left had a head, arms, and legs, but that's where its humanity ended. It sat naked on a metal bench in its cell, 
its hands resting on its knees, its flesh pulpy and pale, its eyes nothing more than vacuous holes on an otherwise featureless face. Mickey backed away from the stranger, his eyes wide, a sense of panic rose in his chest. He looked the stranger up and down. The stranger was the only thing in the long hallway that resembled humanity. The stranger cocked his head slightly to the side. Where are we? Mickey asked, balling his gloved hands up into fists. In a storage facility, the stranger said. Mickey looked around at the menagerie, all behind bars, all pathetic, their expressions, the ones Mickey could read, pleading. What are these things? Mickey asked. Now you fight for me, the stranger said. I send you, you fight them, you bring them here, to me. What are they? Mickey asked again, backing away from the stranger with a pair of sidling steps. They are, how do you say in your world? Demons. And now you fight for me. We protect worlds like yours, you and I, from demons, such as you see here. Mickey turned from the stranger and ran, sprinting down the hall of anguish, his Mickey Atlas robe splaying out behind him like a hawk's tail. The stranger let Mickey run away. There was no need to pursue him. Soon Mickey would grow tired of running. Then, like he had done with so many other recruits, the stranger would convince Mickey Atlas to fight. This has been The Recruit, written and performed by Craig Nibo. A bit about this story. Paul Jeunesse, a good friend of mine and a brilliant author, invited me to write a story for an anthology he was editing entitled The Crimson Pact. Paul based The Crimson Pact on an idea that somewhere on a planet far away, a group of demons thwarts their enemy by escaping through a portal into trans-dimensional universes. The stories in the anthology are about these demons and their vanquishers. The Crimson Pact stretched out to five volumes. You can buy them from Amazon or any other online bookseller. My story, The Recruit, appeared in volume three. Paul featured a few other stories of mine in other volumes. For today's song, I give you something that has never been released. A while ago, my little brother, Larry, and I decided to create a ridiculous YouTube channel called Unboxing Weird Stuff. The premise? We solicited people to send in boxes of strange items for us to unbox and give our commentary. We had fun with this channel. Unfortunately, we let it lapse. But there are 20 or so videos out there that you can watch on YouTube. I recommend you check them out. We keep talking about bringing the channel back alive, but we just can't seem to find the time. Anyways, 
If we received an item that stood out, sometimes we'd compose a song about the item and perform it live on the channel. The song I give you today was inspired by the day that we unboxed a used glow-in-the-dark Ouija board. Now, this board has an even bigger story. The building in which I create these podcasts is haunted. You might be thinking, okay, Craig, haunted. Your podcast is called Terrifying Lies. Whatever. It's just publicity. But I assure you, several ghost hunting groups have come to this nearly 100-year-old building to investigate. They've all found compelling evidence of supernatural activity. Not only that, but many of this building's residents have reported strange sounds, bumps in the night, even supernatural sightings. Sadly, I've never experienced such a disturbance. A ghost hunting group came to the building one night to investigate. I was hanging around with them during their activities. They were getting off-the-chart readings. I mean, they were really excited. That is until the leader of the group, with a stern look in his eye, took me aside. He told me, in a chastising tone, that he'd found a glow-in-the-dark Ouija board on the soundstage. Now, this was the board my brother and I had unboxed. We'd just left it out. I thought nothing of it. I intended to give it away in a raffle to one of our viewers, but just hadn't gotten around to it. This ghost hunter gave me what for regarding paranormal safety. After dressing me down, he took the board to an empty room where he and a medium he had brought along sanitized the board with rituals and salt. He gave me back the board after their ritual and encouraged me to get rid of it. I'm pretty sure my brother threw it out. Or is he pretty sure I threw it out? I don't know. Maybe it's still in the building. If it is, I'm certainly glad that this group of paranormal experts exercised it and made this building a bit safer for everyone. I wrote this song about that Ouija board. You'll hear both me and my little brother, Larry, singing on this one. I now present You Can't Get Bored Playing With Your Ouija Board. Getting the answers from my Ouija board. 
formed a friendship with Albert Einstein. To slip on. They get together with Peter were Gray. This has been You Can't Get Bored Playing With Your Ouija Board, written by Craig Nibo, performed by Craig and Larry Nibo. Once again, I thank you for joining me in this dark old boiler room full of whispers and moans that I like to call the Terrifying Lies podcast. If you like these stories, don't miss even one. I recommend you go back and listen to any stragglers you might have skipped. And why not share the fear by telling your friends about Terrifying Lies? All are invited down here, where the dark closes around you, and you can't quite ignore that stitch you feel behind your ears. Until next time, sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 